When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled, Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams, and the hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back. O mountains, that you skip like rams. O hills, like lambs. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a spring of water. Read that far from God's word today. When we studied the previous three psalms, we studied the phrase, praise the Lord, or alleluia, at the beginning of each of the previous psalms. If your Bible's still open, you'll notice it. If you look to the start of Psalm 111, Psalm 112, and Psalm 113, you'll see that phrase, praise the Lord, in English, which I reminded you is alleluia in Hebrew. But if you look at the end of Psalm 113, the very last phrase is one word in Hebrew. It's the same word, alleluia. So Psalm 113 has this word at the beginning of it and at the end of it, but Psalm 114 does not have it. Now, some have said that this is a scribal mistake, that it should have been the beginning of Psalm 114, and I don't believe that, having studied this, and I'll present to you the reasons why. The absence of Alleluia at the beginning of Psalm 114 is as intentional and beautiful as it is conspicuous. We are supposed to notice that, wait, where's the Alleluia at the beginning? In fact, the whole point of the psalm is not the absence of the Lord, but the presence of the Lord, inviting our excited praise. I liken this to an analogy of of Jesus on Palm Sunday, when they said to him, you know, don't have them praise you. And he says, if the people will not praise me, the rocks themselves will cry out. And what we're supposed to see at the start of our psalm is that if the people aren't praising God, for all that he's done, then we're going to start to see pieces of creation speak up. That's the analogy I find helpful as we pick up our study of this psalm. The the theme of the psalm, of course, is the presence of God, that, that he's near, not far away. That means that God's available. That means he's attentive. He's aware. He knows what's happening in our lives, and that's a good thing. He observes and discerns our situation. And that has the effect of being quite encouraging for us. And for the title of the sermon, as I mentioned, I I borrowed a phrase from a hymn, Great is thy faithfulness. It comes from stanza four. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Almost had us read Psalm 46 as well. I read part of it for our call to worship, and it reminds us of Luther, Martin Luther, the reformer in the 1500s. Uh, Luther wrote that famous uh, hymn also um, based on Psalm 46. Um, um, Great is... uh, Thy mighty fortress is our God. So I almost read that verse because how does that next line go? A very present help in time of trouble. He's present with us. So Luther emphasized this. The Reformers emphasized that God is a very present help. Each year at Christmas time, we emphasize Emmanuel. That's another Hebrew word that you happen to know. Emmanuel means God with us. 
But this truth of the presence of God is older than the Reformation. It's older than Christmas. It's literally older than Christmas. Adam and Eve enjoyed the presence of God in the garden without sin. And then what happened? Genesis 3, 6, the forbidden fruit she ate and he ate. Then just two verses later, it stands out what God told us about what happened next. Genesis 3, verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And in verse 23, Genesis 3, 23, the Lord God sent them out from the garden of Eden, no longer having access to the presence of the Lord God. What we lost in the very first sin of the very first human, our leader, Adam, was our access to the presence of the Lord our God. And so what we need, the good hope, the good news that we need The gospel news that we came to worship God and receive again today is that we've regained somehow the presence of the Lord God. So if you're looking at your bulletin, hand out the outline main point in bold print says this, the classic Old Testament redemption was the Exodus. It was encouraging because of the presence of the Lord. So we'll see how God redeems and then lives among his people, verses 1 to 2. Uh, in verses 3 to 6, even God's creation joins us in responding to his actions and his presence. And verses 7 and 8, this God provides for our needs as his people on our journey. So as Psalm 114 opens, God's people have been 400 years in slavery. We're jumping right back into the story of Exodus. So in verse 1, God swoops into Egypt and blesses his people with his presence. Not that God will then stay with them in slavery, but his presence assumes that he has arrived in order to bring them out of slavery in Egypt. So thus the start of our psalm, when Israel went out from Egypt. Further, in verse 1, we're also told that God's people had long been isolated, suffering in a certain way, in the way of listening to people speak with a foreign language, unknown to them. So we read the second half of verse 1, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language. Verse 2 uses the word sanctuary and also the word dominion to describe the result of God's presence, what it means that God is present with them, that two things happen wherever God shows up. Number one, it becomes a place of worship, a sanctuary, and number two, it becomes a place where he's in charge. Uh, He's to be worshipped and he is the king wherever he shows up. And so God shows up and Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. To say that Judah became God's sanctuary was the same as to say that Israel was his dominion. It's one people with two different names here, Israel and, and Judah. So what we have here is a reminder of the classic Old Testament redemptive act of God. And it points us ahead to the classic New Testament redemptive act of God, the one that really counts, the one that truly redeemed, not just the one that pointed ahead to the full final permanent future forever redemption but the one itself similar to God's rescue of his people in Egypt at Christmas Christ drew near to his people enslaved in sin that God's new classic action of redemption was is when Jesus came near and took on a human body we even call him Emmanuel look how Matthew 
points this out to us in Matthew 1.23, where he takes an Old Testament quote from Isaiah the prophet and causes the direct fulfillment to be understood to be Jesus. Isaiah 7.14 is quoted in Matthew 1.23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then Jesus took us out of slavery to sin by nailing our sins to the cross. And after he died for our sins and rose again, we became a people under his dominion with him as our king. Same concept we see here in verse 2. So with Christ as our king, we look ahead to what he will do. The king then, on the day of Pentecost, when he's coronated as king in heaven pours out his Holy Spirit upon his people, making his presence known to them. It was a gathering of people from various countries, speaking various languages, who each heard the word of God in his own language. Why? Because Christ was drawing closer, even closer now, now even taking up residence within his people, And he was sending his Holy Spirit so that the Spirit of Christ, the presence of Christ, would be with them and reversing slavery to sin, but also reversing the other aspect of suffering that we read about here in verse 1. The house of Jacob came out from a people of strange language, reversing their isolation by not being able to understand other people when they speak, reversing the sense of being dominated and subjugated by a strange people speaking a strange language, And instead, who reverses all that? It's God who sends out his message to each person in their own language, inviting them into the community and making them feel a part of it instead of feeling subjugated and taken over. God's presence by Christ's Spirit does all of this. That's what's pointed ahead to in our psalm. So at Pentecost, the people find themselves becoming the place where God's presence was known. It's a four-picture ahead of time of what happens for real in the day of Pentecost. What God said to Joshua long ago, he also says to us living in the New Testament age and are filled with his spirit, we read this. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. How much more true is that for those of us who have his Holy Spirit in us and with us wherever we go, individually and collectively as a body. So that's our first point. God redeems and then lives among his people, seeing how it's fulfilled in Christ. We move on to verse 3. Now, when you get to verse 3, something radical and almost silly breaks out in our psalm. We find a new take on their familiar Old Testament stories. You know, the stories of God's actions and his presence and the book of Exodus and the book of Joshua. We tell about God saving his people up out of slavery in Egypt and God bringing his people into the promised land in the time of Joshua. And now here in Psalm 114, verse 3, comes the same stories with a completely different angle. In this incredible psalm, we get the viewpoint of what poetically, literarily, happened at the very same time in the elements of the creation, but you have to admit there's something also factual and historical about these parts of creation and what part they played in the redemption because we believe the historicity of the stories. It's as if the parts of creation were turned into people. You know, we say personified. They almost move like people and they seem to give us a message like actors in a play or at least like animals. 
as you'll see as I move forward. When God the creator showed up in Egypt to redeem, what was the reaction of the sea? Or when God showed up to give his people victory in conquering the new land, what was the reaction of the Jordan River? That's our topic beginning in verse 3. But again, it's from a different perspective, this time the perspective of those bodies of water. It's really cool. The answer is that the sea and the river fall all over themselves to make way for the mighty creator who is now present. It's as if they're saying to us, make way for the creator. And they all bow, as it were, before him, saying, what would you like, sir? What does the creator ask of the sea when he's taking action to redeem his people? We could read it from God's word, Exodus 14, 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. Exodus 14, 21. Really, think about this. What should the waters of the sea, the Red Sea in this instance, do in response to the creator God showing up? The waters should do whatever they're told to do. To stand up, let's say, on the right and on the left, making a wall of water on each side like a giant hallway and dry land for the floor, if you don't mind. Make way for the Lord. Make a pathway for God to redeem his people right through us, as it were, we being the two walls of water. The creator is here, they seem to be saying. And similarly, what would the creator ask of the Jordan River? And the time comes for the conquest of the new land. He took on another action to redeem his holy people. You could read that in Joshua 3, verses 14 to 17, which I'll summarize. That when the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant stepped into the water of the river, at that moment it stopped flowing and became dry ground for them to safely cross over. The point in our psalm is that these parts of creation, the Red Sea and the Jordan River, two particular parts of creation, are given a role similar to persons or armies. They have a role in the physical redemption of God's people. And if they have a role in the physical redemption of God's people, they have a role in the celebration of it. And this song is a celebration of it, so they have a role in our psalm. And how respectfully and immediately they responded to the presence of their creator and they did happily it seems take part in the redemption of his people do we have any sort of response like that from people we have that kind of response from the creation we move on to verse 4 we're being asked to remember the role that mountains play in our everyday lives you know mountains let me just say it this way um have you ever taken a picture with a mountain in the backdrop could you ever accuse that mountain of photobombing? Making a funny face, uh, jiggling around a little? Uh, the, the mountain kind of making it obvious that the mountain itself is the key feature of your photo rather than yourselves? Ever have that happen? It's just known about mountains that they just sit there, right? They're always in the background, the backdrop. The mountains are always aloof and majestic, but stable, never moving. We just ask to remind ourselves about that feature about mountains before we get to the study of verse 4. All the more our surprise when we find what the mountains begin to do when God shows up in verse 4. The majestic, static mountains have become as animated as a child at recess on the school playground. The mountains start skipping around like a group of wild rams. 
This is what we're expected to see about the creation in response to its creator. The ever-dignified, regal, stately mountains have become as excited as a giddy child who cannot sit still, cannot stand still, but constantly skips around. I won't ask for an amen, but I know you know what that means. And the mountains are not the only ones. We're told that the hills skip like lambs. Verse 5, we hear the narrator break in and now ask for an explanation from these two geographic monstrosities, both the mountains and the hills. What's going on, he seems to be asking, but look how he asks. He asks in a playful sort of way, a taunting yet playful sort of way. It kind of reminds us of the prophet Elijah taunting the prophets of Baal. Oh, yeah, Baal will answer you. You know, keep asking. Uh, maybe your false god is deep in thought. Uh, maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe your god is on a long journey, or maybe he's asleep and you need to awaken him. It's taunting, but sort of in a playful way. Elijah's asking the prophets, What's the matter? Doesn't Baal answer you? And that's what we get here in these two verses, five and six. And I could try to illustrate. Imagine a family with young children at Christmas time. They're at their home and they go out into the backyard and all the kids have their full snowsuits on, the scarves and little boots and the mittens that are too big for them and they're playing around in, in the yard. And suddenly, one of the children discovers there's a vehicle that arrived out front. And so they run around out front and guess who it is? It's the grandparent. The grandparents arrived out front, and so they run around to tell the other children, and then they run around again, and as children are wont to do, they just keep running round and round the house, and the parents are in back, and the grandparents are out front, and the parents tauntingly, because they know all about this, right? they say to the children, what's the matter? What happened? What's got into you? Why are you running around the house like a crazy person? And they can't even answer because they're jumping and running and jumping and running. They can't even say that grandma's here, grandpa's here, running and jumping. They pass by the parents in the backyard again and again, circling the house. What's the matter? Everyone knows full well nothing is the matter. It's so the opposite of something being the matter. Mom is here, and dad is here, brother's here, sister's here, and to top it all off, grandma and grandpa are here too. It must be Christmas. What you ask the child is, what's the matter? And what you really mean is, isn't this grand? That's how we approach verse 5. Let me read it to you. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? What's the matter with you, O Jordan River, that you turn back your waters? Verse 6, and what's your problem, O mountains, that you skip like rams? What got into you, O hills, that you jump around like a lamb that can't even stand still on a normal day? Narrator's playing dumb. On purpose, because he knows good and well, and the mountains and the hills and all of the creation order knows good and well that nothing is the matter. The Lord God is here. It's one of the best experiences they've ever seen or known that God himself, the creator, has shown up. God is here. God is here. God is here, would say the mountain, if you ever really asked him. When God Almighty comes walking in, that event is the most encouraging, life-giving, hope-giving event that ever could have happened. We're all cheered up and propelled forward into our lives. 
by God's presence with us. It's what we came to seek today. Aren't you here to meet with God? You didn't come to hear me. You came to meet with God through his word, his spirit, his servant. That's what we long await. It's why we're here. It's why we've been created and then redeemed. The more discouraging and deepening and spreading the sinfulness of our days and times in which we're living, the more encouraging is our anticipation of God's arrival one fine day and our hunger to meet with him each week. His spiritual presence is with us already and his physical presence is promised. And if the rivers and creek beds could reply, they'd say, Amen, bring him now. Don't you think the mountains and the sea and the hills long for their creator to fix the problems that you see on the news? The sin that you experience as you walk through this broken world? Paul tells us they do. Romans 8.19, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Romans eight nineteen to 22. I had a professor in seminary who would say it this way. The most significant thing that has happened today is that Jesus Christ has not yet returned in person to take us home. It is the most significant thing that has happened, that we have his presence in spirit, but we don't have his presence physically yet. And so if we sing a sad dirge regarding our sinful world, the creation joins us in singing it. And when Christ comes and we sing a glorious song of victory and celebration, the creation itself will sing it with us. The joy comes in the presence of Christ himself in person with that precious body, the Lord of glory, the king of the church, the creator of all. When he comes, let's take a lesson from the mountains. Our third point is this God provides for our needs. Isn't that the way the psalm ends? As we continue on our journey through this declining and sin-damaged world, the same God provides for our needs consistently. So let me ask you, what do you need? What's the chief thing, the top five things you need? We need to be told how to respond to the presence of God when he comes. We need the truth of God regarding the gospel and the sin and judgment of the holy God. We need the truth of scripture before He comes before we die or before he comes. We need the truth of God. We need to have a proper response to meeting our creator. It's the chief thing we need. And verse 7 tells us how to do it. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob. The apostle John fills in this concept here in verse 7 a bit more when we read his writing in Revelation 20:11 then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them Revelation 20:11 where is the sky supposed to go to flee 
from the presence of God on the throne. Is there like a second zone where the sky could flee over there? There's no place for the sky to flee. You see? Where's the earth supposed to hide from the presence of the Lord God? Again, we're getting lessons from the creation, from the sky and from the earth. They know you can't hide from the living God when he comes. They know there's no place to hide from the throne of God when he issues out his final judgment. That's what we need is the awareness of how to respond to our creator that he would be our redeemer. And it starts with this one word, tremble. Do we respect this God as we should? Do we respect him as the hills do, as the mountains do? Do we respect him as the sea does that will stand up and salute, sir? Yes, I will stand without any water between me and the opposite side of the hallway fish swimming all in. Do we respect God saying, whatever you have for me, Lord God? The parts of the creation need not fear. And we, people, need not fear. It's not that kind of trembling. It's the respect kind of trembling. It's the worship kind of trembling. It's filling out the idea of praise the Lord. Alleluia. It's the mighty God who has been ascribed in our psalm in verse 7 as the God of Jacob, meaning he has the intention of saving us. He's not just coming in judgment. He's coming to save his people. Verse 8 tells us how. It tells us what God plans to do. It's the God who turns the rock into a pool of water. This is the kind of God who's coming. And to repeat it another way, we close the psalm with emphasis on this same concept. It's the God who turns the flint into a spring of water. What does that mean? It's referencing the actions of God caring for his people in the middle of a desert. Recording the book of Numbers, chapter 20, God had brought the people safely through a lot of dangers already. And here the problem was, as it is in a desert, lack of water. Without water, we all die. When scientists tell me we're 85% water, well, we all know we need water. So it's a crisis, lack of water. The people had grumbled. The people asked, why did we even come up out of Egypt only to die here in this place because we don't have water? In other words, if you're going to save us in the first place, are you going to take us all the way home? If you're going to save us over here and we just die in the desert, mox nicks, as they say in German. It doesn't matter. You haven't improved anything. If you're going to save us but not take us through life, what good is Christianity? Without verse 8, where are we? We tremble at this God because not only does he rescue us once for all, but he continues to provide for us all along the way. We have got to believe that or we've got nothing. And that's what he told in the story. Without water, we can't grow grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, as is said in Numbers 20. We can't even drink water. Moses went to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and what happened? He went on behalf of the people. We're suffering here, Lord. The, the people, says Moses. And the glory of the Lord appeared to Moses. Isn't that the presence of God? God gave his presence to Moses on behalf of the people. He told Moses, take the staff, go to the rock. Don't strike the rock. It's a whole other sermon, right? Go to the rock, and the rock will provide water. Hold, hold on. A rock provide water? I mean, it's so familiar to us, we stop being surprised. Do you have a rock on your property that provides water? <laughs> The rock will provide water. He's like, I'll take whatever your difficulty, whatever your hard place, and I'll give you exactly what you need right in the middle of it. I'm God. (laughs) Watch me. 
Right? That's the beauty of the story. Tell that rock to provide water. Take your staff and prophesy over it. Say, the Lord God tells you, O rock, you're going to provide water now. And the rock says, yes, sir, I'm going to provide water. That's what I do. The creation does whatever the creator tells it to do. Even for a grumbling people, by the way, yes, provide them water. This is mercy. And so in verse 8 of our psalm, the author ends with a reference to the story in order to ask us to look to the God who cares for us. Look how this God uses his power. Look how this God uses his creativity to provide for us exactly in the places where we didn't think there was a way through this problem. You can't get out of this mess. Oh, yes, you can. The only thing you need is the presence of God. The beauty of the power of God applied to our situation when we're dangerously lacking basic necessities, such as, for example, water. All we have is, for example, a rock left. God's going to show up in person, take his power, and apply it to our point of need, and the rock becomes a pool of water. How do you like that? The least promising scene, when God shows up, suddenly transformed into a place of plenty and a source of joy. The gospel is that God draws close to us again, undeserving people though we are. The gospel is that God promised Christ would crush the head of Satan, give us access to God again through the tree of life, as it were, to the presence of God permanently, but it came at a cost. The cost was Jesus taking our sins upon himself and experiencing the absence of God the Father, first time ever, so that we will experience the presence of God forever. He needed to die and rise again so that we will regain this incredible core blessing of the presence of God. That's our packed little psalm. I got two application points as we close. Number one, be encouraged about where we're going. Be encouraged about where we're going. Application number one. Our God asks us to view ourselves on a journey through this world to an eternal home. That's who we are and what the scene is. Be encouraged by that. Paul writes in Philippians 3.20, we're citizens of heaven. This is not a maybe. We have a name placard. We've got a seat reserved. We are citizens of and belong there. That's where this story ends. Be encouraged about that. Remind yourself about that as frequently as you need to remind yourself about that because it's the beauty of Scripture, it's the truth of the gospel, and it's the application of this psalm. Writer to the Hebrews puts it this way, Hebrews eleven thirteen. Our forefathers in the faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland a homeland where Christ is, right? Hebrews eleven thirteen to 14. Be encouraged, this place, this broken place, is not permanent for us. It's not even home for us. We are temporary visitors just a-passing through. Be encouraged to seek our homeland. Be encouraged we're moving along in our journey. It's not the same place we were in yesterday, last week, last year. We're closer now. Time is clicking down. We're closer to home. Be encouraged about that. My second and last application from Psalm 114 today. Be encouraged that God's spirit is present with us as Christians now. 
to cheer us and guide us all the way home. Be encouraged that God's Spirit is present with us as Christians now to cheer us and to guide us all the way home. We, the church, are the sanctuary of God, as verse 2 he was saying. The people of God are the sanctuary of God. The church is the kingdom. It's the place where God dwells. How is that? The Spirit of God dwells in the heart and the life of every Christian and so much more in the collective gatherings of us in worship. Peter could write 1 Peter 2, 9, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 2, 9. All different ways of saying the presence of God with us. We're the sanctuary of God. We are the place where God dwells by his spirit. His presence is not just right close. He's inside of us. You don't get closer than that. The presence of God inside of you. Everywhere you go, you have the presence of God with you. We are the dominion of God, the place where he rules over his kingdom like a king and the head shepherd of his church, the fold of God. Just as the people of God in the desert, after they're called out of Egypt, was a time of God providing wonderfully for them, so we, the people of God, already saved and rescued, justified by faith, right? The redemption of Christ dead and alive applied to us already, now have his presence and enjoy God by his Holy Spirit providing wonderfully for us all of our spiritual needs and even our physical needs according to his will. The best thing that God provides is his own dear presence by his spirit to cheer us and guide us all the way home. God didn't give his son only to have us crumble and die halfway to heaven. Look how Paul says it, Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Or Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. And if the New Testament has an equivalent to Psalm 114, which I hope you've fallen in love with now, it's what I'll end the sermon with reading. Romans 8, starting with verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord.